Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I have with me Dr. Sri Kumar. He's the president of Sri Kumar Global Strategies Incorporated, a Santa Monica, California-based global macroeconomic consulting firm that advises multinational investors and sovereign wealth funds. Sri, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Brian. Good to be with you. So I've heard you present twice now and you put out great content um, on your blog, which I highly recommend people subscribe to and we'll provide the information on the on the show notes you're often a guest on cnbc and and some other television programs talking about market commentary but you're really a global macroeconomic top-down analyst and when you go to the website this is kind of where i want to start with you talk about how since 2008 2009 these macro global influences have grown in importance So my question to you, before we get into some other nitty gritty granular issues, is the area of globalization over and are we truly in a de-globalization period in your opinion? That's a question, Brian, which comes up frequently and it it came up initially because of what was happening with COVID in China and as to whether you don't want to depend on your suppliers in a different country who may be affected by COVID. And wouldn't it be better for the for the United States to provide more of its inputs, intermediate goods within the country? And that kind of concern accelerated more recently with the Russia-Ukraine war. They said, well, look what has happened. You cannot get oil and natural gas easily from Russia. That has boosted the inflation rate. If you had only been more careful and diversified your oil and natural gas uh, sources, you wouldn't be in the pickle that you are in today. So that, again, people said, argued against globalization and that in favor of more compartmentalization of the global economy. I strongly disagree with that proposition. I think globalization is alive. 
It is going to be even more important in the future than it has been in the past. This is going to be the difference. The difference is that structures, the alignments are going to be different. If you were buying your natural gas from Russia, as Germany and Italy do to a big extent, they have to find other sources. They are looking at Qatar. They are looking at Congo, Angola to provide the sources. United States and Germany have had talks in terms of liquefied natural gas going from the United States to Europe. And these are changes. And look at the, look at the other alignments. If you had said to me, will Europe ever come together on any item, any topic? I would have quoted to you Henry Kissinger as Secretary of State, his famous statement of 1973, when I want to talk to Europe about foreign policy, who do I go and talk to? There's nobody. I mean, everybody speaks with a different voice. What has happened now is that the European Union has come together as it never has before. And after fighting between the North and South on economic grounds, Germany, Netherlands, Austria on the Northern side, Italy, Spain, Greece on the Southern side, saying that they needed more resources. I'm not going to give you more resources. You're profligate, etc. They issued a 750 billion euro bond after what we had as COVID. And Mario Draghi, the prime minister of Italy and the former president of the European Central Bank, has suggested a common bond for all of Europe. This has happened all in the last couple of years. Is that less globalization? No, it's more globalization than we had before. And I think what you're going to see is a few parts of the world are going to get isolated. You're not going to depend very much on Russia. You cannot go with Ukraine. It is a huge, huge wheat supplier to a number of countries. We don't realize how important Ukraine is on the food side. So I think people are going to change their alignments and globalization is going to be very much alive. I tend to agree with you. I, the analogy I draw is what we saw play out before, you know, World War One, World War Two, where these geographic uh, alliances popped up, right? So you've got kind of the quad with India and Australia, Japan, US in Southeast Asia. You've got the European Union, which is kind of coalescing and solidifying around itself. And then, you know, North America, and then it's kind of China, Russia and everybody else. Let's take it a step further. If that is the thesis that we are operating under for the next generation, how does that impact asset allocation, investing decisions, especially in you know non-domestic U.S. markets? I think in terms of the changes that are coming forth, the way they are going to affect asset allocation is that you are going to be allocating more toward countries which are seen as quote-unquote less risky. For example, what we have found in recent uh, months is the fact that China's support for Russia, whether explicit or implicit, is going to mean that you cannot depend very much on the Chinese suppliers because there is a risk that the blacklisting that has taken place in the case of Russia and Russian entities and oligarchs could extend over to China for some of the actions that it does. So if that is the case, you want to say, well, I have a lot of suppliers in China and I may not be able to give up on them immediately, but I have to try to diversify across. So the global asset allocation is going to go toward areas, toward companies 
that are going to benefit in the next five years from the realignment. And you, so the, to the extent you can pick securities where you say these are companies which are based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which can substitute for a company in Shanghai, and you do that selection correctly, you're going to be a big winner in your investment allocation process. On the other hand, if you do your asset allocation, as you always did before, and said, China has already worked for me, it's a low-cost producer, I've made a lot of money in the last five to 10 years, so I'm not going to change. Familiarity means that I'm going to stick with it. If that's going to be your attitude, the new world is not going to be favorable to you. And you might then say, hey, globalization is falling apart. I would respond, globalization did not fall apart. Your asset allocation did not take into account the changes in the global structure. Are you personally advocating um, or are you advising folks that the China is an investable country today or you risk off on China? Great question. This is the way I put it. Again, first of all, I do not pick securities. I've never been a stock analyst for more than 40 years of being in the financial industry. However, what I have been is to look at countries and look at country risk as they have an implication for investments. So what I have been saying, and it's not recently, it did start with COVID and it did not start just with the Russian war. For more than two years prior, I have started to say the Chinese risk has increased because of their coming down on the tech sector, for example. Alibaba was a company that they hit on. Why? Because you are pretty, you're getting too big for your shoes. Um, and you think you're a huge global tech company. Hey, you are not very important. I'm the president of China and I'm the most important person. And you are subordinate to me, no matter how successful you may be as an entrepreneur. That is a risk to global investors. So you do not know when the government can decide that this particular human being is a, is a risk to the president's continuity of tenure. Second, what caught my attention even more was the fact that a relatively benign activity, like tutoring students to get into college, in, in, in China, or they were tutoring the students to go to top universities in the United States so they prepare you and they tell you what it is you need to know to be a good applicant. You would think, oh, what's wrong with that? They see that company seems to be doing a good job. The Chinese government intervened in that process and said, by tutoring, which only the high-income families are able to pay for, you are increasing the class distinction. You're making the rich kids' children even better educated. The poor kids cannot get your tutoring. Therefore, tutoring companies are worsening income distribution in the country. So I wouldn't have thought about that connection in such a complex manner. But all of that means, Brian, that you have an increasing amount of China sovereign risk dominating on the security risk. Finally, you asked a question which I'm coming to. Is China uninvestable? I would never use the word uninvestable with respect to any country or any branch of activity. There are investment opportunities available. There may be distress opportunities. There may be high-risk opportunities. But you should go ahead and do that if you have analyzed your risk carefully. Rather than say China is uninvestable, I would say to you, Chinese sovereign risk has dramatically increased. That's the way I would put it. 
when the Ukraine crisis first uh, started, there was a lot of analogies being drawn between what Russia was trying to do in Eastern Europe and what China has signaled they want to do with Taiwan. Many institutional folks have come out and said that that is not a fair analogy to draw, that there are many differences there. But do you think how the West, including the U.S. and Europe, has responded to Russia's um, activities in Ukraine has made China less likely to invade Taiwan or more likely? First of all, you pose the question as saying the Russia-Ukraine developments, whether they do or do not have any implication for China uh, or China versus Taiwan. Let me say to you very emphatically that they do have an implication. And what kind of an implication is it? And I'll tell you my own perception of Chinese risk. Before February 24th, the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I had taken the position, and I did tell investors then, that you have to be very concerned about a possible armed conflict with Taiwan. Uh, later this year, toward the end of the year, Xi Jinping in China is going to be looking to get coronated. That's the word I would use. It's like a king. For another five years as president. And in order to do that, if the economy is suffering due to COVID, if the economic growth rate has come down, you need something to increase nationalism to, so that you can boost your own popularity. And I had thought that in that context, he may well be tempted to start a war with Taiwan. After February 24, I abruptly changed my advice, my counseling of clients. And where is that coming from? I said that the Russian developments have not been a quick victory for Putin. If anything, it's been a grinding problem with, again, thousands and thousands of deaths, not only on the Ukraine side, but on the Russian side. Russia has been ostracized. To give you a prime example, Italy used to be very friendly with Russia over the years. They have been among the first to go back and say the European Union should stay away from it and we should cut off purchases of Russian oil and hopefully eventually Russian natural gas. All of that says to me that if you were Xi Jinping sitting in Beijing and you were watching the developments in Russia in eastern Ukraine, you would say, first of all, this is what is going to happen to me probably if when I start a war with Taiwan, these countries will do the same to me, to me, China. Second, Russia is a big exporter mainly of energy products. China, on the other hand, has very close economic ties with the European Union. The Chinese economic growth is based on exports, and exports are a big part of Chinese GDP and GDP growth. So if China gets ostracized by Germany, France, and Italy, that would be a much more serious case for China to deal with than it, it will be for Russia, if you, if you see the drift of where I'm headed to. That is one reason to ex for reduced expectation of a China-Taiwan conflict. Second reason is more military-related rather than economics-related, and that is that in the case of Russia going into Ukraine, it's a neighboring country. They could move their tanks by land over to Ukraine, and they thought they could easily take over eastern Ukraine, and the whole country can crash. And then we would then nominate a dummy president of our liking, and things will be fine. On the other hand, what do the Chinese have to do? China and Taiwan are separated by water. 
So you cannot run your tanks from the mainland over to Taiwan. You have water in between. You have to have ships and you have to move your armaments across the water with even more chances of being attacked and not getting it done properly. So the risk in a China, risk for China in a China-Taiwan war is much greater than for Russia in a Russia-Ukraine war. So you have two problems. One is the potential ostracism of China by economic powers. Second, the fact that just as Xi Jinping is trying to go into another five years, he looks like a big loser on the armed conflict front, which is not good in China at all in terms of saving face. So both of them, to me, suggest that that part of the Chinese risk has actually gone down dramatically. And I would add to your commentary that this this coronation, which I would agree that's the correct adjective to use, is unprecedented third term under the modern Chinese communist government setup. So he is really installing himself to be a lifelong ruler. This concept of strategic ambiguity has been one that the U.S. has operated under in regards to Taiwan in terms of whether or not we will come to their aid and defend them militarily since the Carter administration. Do you think that strategy and that approach will change moving forward for the U.S.? And do you think it will be determined by which party wins the White House in 2024? Um, here is the first point. I'm going to take your second point first. And irrespective of what happens on November 8th this year with the midterm elections, what happens in November 20, 2024 with the presidential elections, uh, it is that doesn't affect the U.S.-China relationship much because both the Republicans and the Democrats are essentially opposed to China and they do not want to do anything that is friendly. Think about the fact that we in the United States suffering from high inflation can bring it down. One way to do it is to reduce the, what I call the Trump tariffs on China. If we brought them down, we can bring down our own inflation. Why don't we do it? Because Biden will be accused of being a pacifist, trying to do something to please the Chinese, which is not good on political sides, even though it may help on the economic grounds. So, Either party is, first of all, going to become, continue to remain relatively hostile with respect to, to China. In terms of what happens with respect to the ambiguous relationship between the United States and China, I see, Brian, from now through the next couple of years, um, that they will go and touch repeatedly at the border of ambiguity. What, what I mean by that is you send Defense Secretary Austin over to Taipei for three or four days of talks. Then Secretary of State Antony Blinken then goes over to talk. And the Chinese get very upset about it to say that senior China, uh, U.S. officials are going repeatedly to it. And then let's find out the, the Chinese president uh, on arrival in Washington, D.C. is invited to the White House and they treat the president as if there is clearly here a head of state that is visiting us. And that in turn would annoy the Chinese to no end at all. So these are the various moves you can take in order to show your closeness. You don't have to move U.S. arms over to Taiwan facing the mainland. That, that's a bit too much. But you're going to do a whole lot of things on the economic front, diplomatic front, not military front, economic and diplomatic front to try to make uh, the, Chai, the Chinese more concerned about it. 
what can the Chinese do in reply? There will be fierce speeches. They will say this is unacceptable. This is meaningless. This is nonsense. It's not going to affect the Biden administration. Besides, if, if, the, if there are other problems for President Biden on the economic front, one way he can gain positive mileage on the popularity front is to take an attitude like this with respect to Taiwan and opposing mainland China. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. Let's pivot to domestic issues here in the U.S., namely inflation and the Fed. This is one of the, the, the points that you comment on very often. Could you maybe give us a snapshot? This We're recording this in the summer of, of 2022. We just hit inflation numbers like 8%. Rates have gone up precipitously. Um, could you just provide some commentary? You know, Do you think the Fed is overcorrecting? Do you think they're getting it right? And then obviously kind of weaving in, how do you invest in a market where equities go down, bonds go down, IPOs are suffering, SPACs are blowing up. There doesn't seem to be a safe place to allocate in today's market. Yeah, you have a a lot of questions there. So I'm going to try to cover as many as I can remember and come out with. If I miss something, please feel free to remind me. First of all, in terms of why we have a high inflation rate, the Federal Reserve and President Biden say blame COVID, blame Putin. To me, those are meaningless statements. You cannot blame others for what you have done principally. COVID worsened it. The the Russia-Ukraine war has increased the supply bottlenecks, made inflation worse. On the other hand, I don't think that's the reason why we have high inflation. We have high inflation because under Jerome Powell's leadership at the Fed, we had the Fed's balance sheet increased from somewhere in the neighborhood of $4 trillion at the beginning of 2020, just before COVID, which was itself five times where we were on what I call Lehman Day, September 15th of 2008. So we went from $800 billion to $4 trillion, and very recently we almost touched $9 trillion. So we more than doubled from February, January, February 2020 to about January, February 2022. What was your rationale for doubling the balance sheet after you had already increased it? And why was the increase in the balance sheet taking place even after it was very clear that inflation was picking up in the months of 2021? The answer is Jerome Powell had not been renominated. It would have helped him to get the renomination in order to push that case about keeping uh, the economic growth going. And thereafter, remember, it was November 30th that he switched over from saying inflation is transitory to saying it is probably going to be sustained. What's special about November 30th of last year? It was just a few days, just about a week after President Biden renominated him. Then he kept saying in March of this year, he can actually bring down inflation rate. No longer was he saying it was transitory. It is now going to be sustained. But I can bring it down without any pain. 
March 15th, Brian, the Federal Reserve put out forecasts showing that the unemployment rate would stay at about 3.6%. Economic growth would still be about 2% for the next two years. And inflation rate come down. And I called it a fairy tale. This is simply not going to happen. Why? Because even though he had been renominated, he had not been confirmed by the U.S. Senate until a few days ago. Before the chairman is reconfirmed, he did not want to say that there is going to be a lot of pain. He may lose some democratic support in the Senate, especially before the November elections. And this to me is amazing. The Senate confirmed him by 81 to 19. Within two hours after the confirmation, he said there will be pain. Nothing had happened economically. So this is how monetary policy is being run. And so that is causing inflation to go up. It is increasing volatility in the markets. And you have a situation where various Fed governors, Christopher Warner at the beginning of last week speaking in Frankfurt, uh, Vice Chairman Lyle Brainerd speaking yesterday, uh, we had Jim Bullard speaking last week. They all have the statement made which are contradicting each other. So what do you do when somebody says only two more rate increases are, necess are necessary, do you buy equities? And then when Lyle Brainerd said there may need to be more in September, do you sell equities? Do you keep buying and selling whenever they speak? Because you have nothing long term to go by. That is adding to it. The final point here on why in inflation has stayed sustained is that interest rates remained at near zero level until March 15, when it was very clear that we had had a big economic recovery from COVID. Why was that the case? Well, politically, it was easy to persist with low interest rate. It makes the Fed popular. St equity investors like it. It is boosting up equities. Workers like it. They're able to borrow cheap. Companies like it because they can do also risky activities, borrowing a lot of the money. So that is what has changed now with the current situation, which is why it's going to take a lot more difficult to bring the inflation, down, uh, inflation rate down because you, we have an inflated balance sheet and interest rates are just way, way too low. The final point I would say to, that, to what you, we have been talking about is that there is the fear of the unknown. The 1998 crisis with the Russian default and the failure of LTCM in Connecticut took place because it all started with Alan Greenspan's Fed in February of 1994, unexpectedly increasing interest rates, which shocked a lot of fixed income managers because they had not expected that move. And that in turn caused the Mexican peso devaluation in 1994. It led to the Asian crisis of 1997, Russia to default, HBCM to go bankrupt. 2008, we all know of the range of companies which went under, some of which were saved. Large investment banks in the United States, which should have gone bankrupt, but they were essentially saved by federal uh, government coming in and making sure they did not fail. So you have that risk that you have some failure because of very low interest rates and the leverage taken by companies being annulled by very rapid rate increases. Suddenly, Somebody cannot make margin cons. You have a huge failure, and then the Federal Reserve and Treasury are forced to step in. That's the other risk we are running today. 
So given all that, and, and I really enjoy, especially your comment about how companies have been able to borrow cheaply and not be so focused on actually profit-making activities. And there, there will be a washout there, in my opinion. How do you allocate assets in today's environment, especially considering many investors have never experienced an inflationary environment before in their professional careers? Right. You are absolutely right. Not only have they not experienced high inflation, even fewer, Brian, have experienced the phase of the 1970s going into 1981. And that's why my major complaint with the economic forecasting today is that there is an automatic expectation that recession means inflation will end. Recession will kill total demand. You will buy less goods and services, and therefore you will contribute to lowering the inflation rates. It did not work in the 1970s because demand could not be destroyed for oil for, uh, and so for petroleum, for gasoline. And you're seeing this happen today. And what are you seeing happen? You're seeing that in various states, we have gasoline prices, which are very high. In California, if you were to buy Certain grades of gasoline are over $7 a gallon. And you don't suddenly say, I'm not going to drive to work and I'm simply going to stay home, especially if COVID ends and people are more people are going back to their offices. It is going to put a dent on the family budget. On the other hand, you're going to keep buying gasoline. You have to keep buying food, which has also gone up substantially in price. And the, the demand there cannot be destroyed. So what is the Fed doing? The Fed is looking at what it calls PCE deflator, personal consumption expenditure deflator, which runs at a much lower level than the consumer price index. The point I would make is, why choose a different index? The consumer price index is what you and I, when we get social security payments, when we get retirement payments, the indexation is done using the CPI. The Federal Reserve uses a measure which is totally different. The reason is it typically runs about two percentage points lower than the CPI. Second thing the Fed does is to say that that favorite index is not just the PCI, but the core PCI. The word core means that you have removed food and you have removed fuel from the core, from the basket. So if you remove core, are the two items which have gone up substantially in price, you are going to end up with a much lower inflation rate. But then you and I cannot live on the core inflation rate. When you go to the grocery store to buy groceries, you can't just say, oops, you cannot increase the price of eggs on me, which have gone up substantially in the last year. I'm not going to pay you more for eggs because I work with the core inflation rate. The grocery store will tell you to get out of there because they are going to hike based on the various indexes and your cost of living will in fact go up by the headline rate. So there are two problems, not using the consumer price index is a major issue. Using a core figure rather than the headline figure is another major issue. Once you correct for those two issues, you will find that inflation continues at a very rapid pace. We've all become familiar with this concept of quantitative easing since the Great Recession. And we've learned what that does to markets. How much will quantitative tightening matter to risk asset prices moving forward? I think quant QT, um, 
otherwise known as balance balance sheet reduction, whatever you let's call it QT because it's easier, uh, is going to be more powerful than interest rate increases in affecting the economy and affecting uh, the stock market. We understand that QT began on June 1st, a couple of days ago. And the question is, do they continue it? Um, Powell has been very careful. In June and July, they are going to be reducing it by only $47.5 billion a month, not the $95 billion that they have that they have talked about. And they will only take $47.5 billion of paper that is maturing. They will not put it back into the market, but they will not actively sell bonds. So that's the way they are going to do it. My question is, after you have bloated the, the balance sheet by two times from the beginning of 2020, why are you so careful in cutting, uh, reducing the balance sheet? I will tell you why the Fed is so careful. Because they think QT is a very powerful mechanism and they do not want to use that and cause a, a high unemployment rate. We recall that President Biden and Chairman Powell met recently, and I w- I've been asked repeatedly, do you think the president told the Powell to go easy on the rate hikes? I said, not really. The president said in public, he's going to leave inflation control to the Fed and he's not going to intervene. What both of them realize, but will not tell you today, is the fact that inflation is not going to be easily controlled. When the November elections come, inflation is going to remain at relatively high level. It may not be 8.3%, but if it's 55 or 6%, that is not going to be sufficient to please the voters. So what the president can do at that stage is to say, well, as you all know, I left it to Powell and his colleagues to manage it. Looks like they haven't done a good job. So you essentially say you give the independence to the Fed but only to have the opportunity to criticize them at a later point in time. And I think that's what is going to happen. So there is a honeymoon right now. Everybody is all harmony, but uh, with the passage of time, that's going to disappear. You referenced Xi's coronation and the midterm elections. What are some other large events that maybe are not on people's radars, but they should be tracking as they're making investment decisions? And let's just say, that will be occurring in Q3, Q4 for the remainder of the year. There are lots of unknowns. For instance, we did not, even two days before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I was in touch with, the, with during my trips to Moscow, as somebody that I like to talk to, a big, big-time thinker, and he, uh, Russia himself. And he, uh, he wrote a piece two or three days prior saying the invasion will not happen. So you can, you can have shocks, surprises, uh, which very few of us think about. So I'm going to, having made that as my um, start, I'm going to give you some possibilities. And they are, uh, in terms of likelihood and expansion of the war, the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, we have put Putin in a corner and we have basically not given him any room to save face. Um, Henry Kissinger, when he said about ten a week ago that Ukraine should concede some land to Russia and then call it quits, I think what he was trying to say was do that, help him save face so that we can all go back to normalcy. But Ukraine has very quickly said we are not going to do that. That's not going to happen. 
So an expansion of the war, here is the unknown, that Poland, uh, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, but Poland is a member of NATO. And they are, Ukraine and Poland are neighboring countries. In fact, the Ukrainian refugees, many of them go to Poland to take refuge. And let's say that as the Russians are targeting, they attack, maybe by mistake, a Polish target. And you know the NATO rule, an attack on one is an attack on all of us. So technically speaking, when Poland comes under attack, even the United States has to be involved in, uh, in getting sure that Russia is attacked back in terms of it. And think about the potential for it, then it becomes much more, the nuclear risk increases very much. So that would be one area in which I would think about it. Second is, it just uh, living in California and now having been in New York City for the last several days, it is amazing to me how COVID is still very much prevalent all over the country with every variant being followed by a new variant. And the, the public behaves as if masks are no longer necessary. We can go because the economic pain of wearing a mask and being told you, should, you, can, you have to wear a mask in a plane means you will not travel in a plane maybe. So what I found in traveling is the fact that people are, you cannot require people to wear masks, so they come without it. And the bottom line here is you can have more variation of the COVID risk. And if that happens and puts a, a hit on the economy, and if we do not have a vaccine still available for the new variant, we are looking again at very uh, significant risk. So I would say that those two would be top top on my mind, an expansion of the Russia-Ukraine war and a new form of COVID taking taking uh, place. I wouldn't be worried if it, if it just becomes like influenza and you just have to get a shot every year. You can go and get a shot. I get a flu shot every year. It's not a big deal. But if it becomes intractable, if it becomes uh, another killer, then it kills the global economy, it kills the global markets. And then what do you do? You cannot provide stimulus again because you have already doubled the balance sheet you can't double it one more time when the inflation is raging so the next crisis makes it much more difficult for fiscal and monetary stimulus to handle that how many arrows left in the quiver um besides something were to happen so, so final question largest geopolitical risk out there today in your opinion what would it be the largest geopolitical risk is, again, I would say Russia and the nuclear capability. It's very geopolitical. It is the country which is large enough in terms of geographic size and in terms of armaments to be able to make a difference. And it is also the situation where since you do not have a democratic decision-making process, um, you have run the risk that the president can make a decision which you cannot forecast. In the United States, it's easier to forecast because the president is susceptible to the public will. In Russia, it doesn't happen that way. That would be my, my pick. Sri, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Fascinating conversation. Your perspective is incredible. And we hit a lot of different areas. So I want to thank you for bearing with me as I asked you compound questions. And we went all the way from Taiwan to the U.S. and ping-ponged around. We'll include your content information in the show notes, but if people are interested in connecting with you either as an advisor or a speaker, which you're terrific at, by the way, if you are hosting an event, I highly recommend that you have them come on as a keynote. 
and then your 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 blog newsletter what's the best way for them to get engaged with you yeah to get in touch with me since i'm traveling constantly brian uh, my email address, which is srikumar at srikumarglobal.com, is the best way to reach me. And then I can always read my emails promptly, reply to them. And then if we need to talk over the phone, uh, we can do that. And you were kind enough to make reference as well to Economics, my weekend thesis. And it is streakonomics.substack.com. And either people can put themselves on the email list or tell me to put their email on the email list. Or another way to connect is to go on Twitter, where I usually, when I write it, I also post it on Twitter, any one of three ways that they can read it to stay abreast of what I'm saying. Well, thank you so much. We'll have to do uh, a second installment in six months and see how wrong we both were with all of our assessments <laughs> and what happens in the world. I want to thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And again, I encourage all the listeners to sign up for the newsletter, Engage with Sri, because he has very insightful pieces. So. Thank you so much for the time. I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you, Brian, very much indeed. I enjoyed the conversation a lot. You had a lot of perceptive questions and it was great. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.